Hello and welcome to the Conversation Weekly. I'm Mend Marwani in Medellin, and this week we're joined by our colleague in the UK. Hello, I'm Avery Annapol from London. Avery, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. You've been working with us on an episode about migration, and you're someone who has migrated yourself, haven't you? I have, and it actually felt kind of weird just now to say I'm from London because I'm not really. I'm originally from the U.S., um, and I moved to the U.K. for a master's degree about four years ago. Uh, got married and and stayed here where I work now. And the way we talk about migration is so interesting, and it's it's really different depending on who we're speaking about. So when I first moved here, I used to consider myself an expat, uh, but now that I've learned a lot more about migration and the different systems and gone through the visa application process myself, I do consider myself an immigrant. But I'm also very aware of how differently the system treats me as a white woman coming to the UK on a spouse visa compared to someone, for example, seeking asylum or coming from a you know, quote, less developed country than the US. Yeah, you're right. My family and I also moved to Europe as asylum seekers and I've migrated to different places around the world for work, like now I'm in Colombia. So I know exactly what you mean when you say that every country has different policies and systems in place for letting people migrate. Exactly. So, for example, right now in the UK, the government is pushing through legislation called the Illegal Migration Bill, which many experts say A, would violate international law, and B, would effectively ban people from seeking asylum in the UK. So what we also see is policies like this push people to take more dangerous routes when they need to migrate. For example, crossing oceans in unsafe boats. If you look at the recent tragedy near Greece, the sinking of a ship with hundreds of men, women, and children on it, uh, that was happening on one of the world's most dangerous maritime crossings. And those were people headed to Italy to seek asylum. Yeah, and the UK isn't the only place that's trying to make their policies more stringent. Recently, the EU has started talks with Tunisia about a deal worth 1 billion euros in aid. And in return, they want Tunisia's help in stopping migrants trying to make their way into Europe. But policies aren't always based on research. They're often based on public sentiments and what's popular. Exactly. So that's what this episode is about. I wanted to find out more about what migration actually looks like around the world. Why are people migrating? Where are they going? Why might they choose one country over another? And what does the future look like for the movement of people around the world? I was especially interested in how migration works in the parts of the world that here in Europe we don't often talk about. So in this episode, we'll refer to this as the Global South, which means broadly Africa, South America, and parts of Asia. But before that, I reached out to someone who could give me a bit of context as to what's happening around these migration policies in Europe, a continent where migration has become even more controversial in recent years. My name's Heaven Crawley. I'm a professor of international migration, and I'm based at the UN University Center for Policy Research in New York, where I'm head of equitable development and migration. I started doing research on migration really back in the late 1980s when I was a student at Sussex University. I became very interested in migration in the context of the breakup of the former Yugoslavia and the so-called refugee crisis that was taking place at that time in the late 80s. And of course, that language of crisis in relation to forced migration is something that's very much a feature of recent years in Europe. Um, I wanted to touch on this word you mentioned, crisis. That's certainly something that we hear today in how migration is talked about a lot in the media and politics. I was wondering if you could just give us a general picture of, of how migration is represented in the media, especially 
in Europe and the way that we talk about the movement of people. I mean, it's absolutely fair to say that there is crisis associated with migration and it's normally for the people who are actually moving because they are often in situations where there are huge inequalities in the right to move. And unlike people like you and me who are able to move relatively freely and with opportunities to apply for visas, for work and study, etc. For other people, that's not the case. And so they have to move irregularly. They have to move without documentation often. And they find themselves in these terrible situations where they are caught up in these movements often across seas that we've been seeing more recently, but of course, often also across desert and areas which are very inhospitable. So for them, there's a crisis. But that, she says, is not usually what politicians or the media are referring to when they talk about a migration crisis. Normally, it's the representation of migration as a a sort of threat, if you like, to our societies, to our economies, to our security. And that's a, a discourse and a representation that isn't particularly new, but has certainly become more prevalent over the last 10 years, I would say, and really highlighted in the so called refugee crisis of 2015 2016, when more than a million people arrived across the Mediterranean and the Aegean Seas. But actually, most of the coverage of that was focused on, again, the kind of threat to Europe that came with that movement, as opposed to the needs of the people who were moving themselves. Heaven says that in the UK, a lot of this language began shifting as early as the 1980s and 90s. So I think what we've seen, and actually from the late 1980s and certainly the late 1990s, when the Labour government came into power in the UK, you saw a very clear differentiation between the good migrants and the bad migrants. And the good migrants are those people who are coming for work and who are moving regularly. And we see millions of people every day passing through airports, for example. We don't even question that migration. It's absolutely intrinsic to our economies and the way that we function as a society. But that part of migration that happens irregularly, the smallest part, is symbolically much more significant. So I think that kind of narrative of the good or bad migrant is a real feature of European discourse. But actually, you see it around the world now. Look at Bolsonaro's Brazil. Look at what's happening in parts of India at the moment or Malaysia. So I think it's a feature of much of the world, unfortunately. She says that much of the language and policies are meant to deter irregular migrants. So that's people who enter a country outside of the official visa application routes. It's a word that scholars use, and more people are using it now, as an alternative to illegal migrants. But these policies, she says, are not necessarily based on real figures and data. They're fear-mongering or political plays based on the idea that millions of people are coming to take advantage of the wealth of countries in the global north. So the first thing to say is that most people don't move. Most people don't move at all. (laughs) And those that do mostly move within their countries. As individuals, we often move for work or education. That's very common. Huge amounts of migration internally in certain countries, for example, China, very large scale migration from rural to urban areas. But overall, people do not move across an international border. They don't move to another country for all sorts of reasons, which we can come on to. So only about 3.6% of the population actually moves across an international border. 96% don't move at all. So 281 million people roughly last year moved across an international border. And of those, around a third are moving between the countries of the global north, around a third are moving from south to north, and around a third are moving between the countries of the global south. So that's roughly 93 million people migrating in each of these regions and between. But Heaven says these numbers are also often misrepresented. We tend to hear much more about south to north, for example. So there's a really important global picture here about how 
not everybody is moving from the south to north. In fact, two thirds of people are moving from north to north or south to south. Most migration in Africa is within Africa. Something like 80% of all African migration stays within the continent, often in these regional blocks, because we have the equivalent of a European Union arrangement in West Africa with ECOWAS, for example, One of the largest migration flows in the world is between Burkina Faso and Côte d'Ivoire. And that's because of the cocoa sector industry in Côte d'Ivoire. We have also one in East Africa and in the South, we have SADC. But we don't get to hear about those kinds of movements because they're very much peripheral to our dominant understanding. We tend to hear much more about um, South to North, for example. But even when people do migrate to the global North, for example, to Europe, their reasons for doing so are often different and more complicated than what we hear about from politicians and the media. People are moving for all sorts of reasons that have nothing to do with the reasons that dominate the media discourse. Most people are moving for work. And most people are moving because there are opportunities in countries other than their own to be able to secure a livelihood that can improve the outcomes from their families, for their children to be able to go to school, and actually ultimately can contribute towards development. Migration has always been, if you like, a force for good in terms of development. The global north wouldn't be as developed as it was were it not for the profits that came from colonization and migration and slavery, of course. Likewise, there's little discussion about how migrants make positive contributions in the recipient or host countries that they move to. We don't get to hear about the migration that works, and it is most migration. Most people move for work, most people do work, most people contribute when they're regular to the taxes of a particular country. They contribute culturally, socially, in terms of what we eat, in terms of who we engage with. We don't talk about that. So I think as long as we stay focused in both a media sense, but also in a policy sense on that part of the story, then we will not be able to benefit wholly from everything else that is happening. And that's the irony in a way is that we don't talk about most migration, even though it is such an important part of our society. 14% of the UK population was born in a country other than the UK. That's something approaching 10 million people. Now, that seems to me to be a very important contribution. In the EU, about 9%, or 38 million people, were born outside of the Union. In Australia, 29% were born outside the country, and in the US, it's roughly 14%. And Heaven says, even if countries wanted to, they wouldn't be able to turn back the clock on migration. But would they actually want to stop migration altogether? Firstly, you would need migration. And secondly, there are relationships between people who have migrated historically that create a sort of momentum for migration. So in that context, surely the best thing to do is to think about how best to harness migration for the greater good, rather than constantly focusing on how to stop it, or certainly in terms of the policy and media narrative. Interestingly, most people in their day-to-day lives have lots of personal experience of migration. And actually, when you talk to people about their attitudes towards migration, their day-to-day lived experience are generally much more positive than the media narrative. I mean, we're starting to see a little bit of a change, actually, in some of the polling around public attitudes, because people are coming to realise that actually migration can be very positive in terms of their day-to-day lives, who they mix with, who their family are married to. Many people have people in their family who have also migrated. So I would say it's about really understanding migration at the local level. Many migrant communities and Indigenous national populations do very well coexist alongside one another. So I think engaging at the local level and understanding what's going on locally can be much more positive. 
Avery, I really like Kevin's point about migrants being more woven into our personal fabric and our cities than some people like to think. And it made me think of these DNA kits where people often find out that they are 30% from parts of Asia or another part of Africa. Absolutely. So as you say, there's a lot of negative discussion of migrants in many parts of the world. But when we learn about our own histories, uh, we really get a sense of just to what extent migration, whether it was by choice or forced migration, is a part of all of our stories. But as Heaven says, a lot of the time when migrants are talked about in the media and politics in the global north, their incentives are misrepresented. There is often the assumption that people are coming to take advantage of welfare systems and jobs. So I'm wondering, do we actually have any research that's looked at the real reasons people choose to go to one place over another? That's exactly what I wanted to find out. So I spoke with Valentina Diazio at the University of Southampton. She's researched how migrants, especially asylum seekers, choose what country to go to. My name is Valentina Diazio, and I'm a research fellow at the University of Southampton. I am affiliated at the Department of Economics and to the Center of Population Change. In our work that is co-authored with Professor Jacqueline Waba that is working at the University of Southampton as well, we analyze which are the main factors that determine the location choice of asylum seekers. And uh, we were particularly interested in understanding which are the main pull factors that drive asylum seekers to choose a particular destination within the EU countries and to measure their relative importance. We also wanted to understand whether the location choice of asylum seekers is shaped in a different way from economic migrants. So therefore, we included all the pull factors that in the literature were found relevant for economic migrants. We tried to understand whether there were any difference with the asylum seekers. Economic migrants and asylum seekers are considered two distinct groups of people. Economic migrants are driven mainly by the pursuit of better economic opportunities. They move to another country usually through legal means, for example, by obtaining a work or a student visa. On the other hand, asylum seekers are those who flee their home countries due to fear of prosecution, violence, or other human rights abuses. They often seek refuge and protection in another country through irregular means. In their research, Valentina and her colleague Jacqueline Waba were especially interested in finding out what role the economic situation in host countries plays for economic migrants when they decide what country to move to. There is this hypothesis in the literature about the welfare magnet, so that people choose to migrate where the welfare state is more generous. And uh, we were also interested uh, with measuring the role of economic conditions at destination. So things like uh, GDP or unemployment that are very major factors for economic migrants. And um, also we measured the role of geographical proximity and cultural proximity that are also like things that are very important for economic migrants. Another important thing that we try to measure is the role of the ban from the labor market, because in the EU countries, with the exception of very few countries, like for instance, Sweden, all the countries impose a ban on the labor market for asylum seekers. So basically they cannot work in the country. And this ban is variable and vary between 2 and 12 months. And some countries only allow asylum seekers to start to work after they have been granted asylum. So when they get the status of refugees. And then we started to include some things that are mostly important for asylum seekers. So for instance, the time of processing or like repatriation risk and policy change that restrict or facilitate the access for asylum seekers to social protection. And uh, another core finding of our research is that we also wanted to know how social networks were influencing the choice of asylum seekers and so whether they choose a destination or the other. 
Our study has shown that the strongest pull factor is social networks, and we measure it both in terms of previous asylum applicants and migrant stocks from the same country of origin. And these are both like previous asylum seekers from the same country of origin, or like economic migrants or anyone that is in the country of destination and comes from the same country of origin. So it's important for people to have a community of people with similar culture, maybe share the same language, that sort of thing when they arrive somewhere? Yes, exactly. So for them, it might be particularly important to have someone to rely for support and also to have someone that gives information previous to the departure. We find that, for instance, the relative magnitude of social networks is five times more than the social spending. For instance, for unemployment, that is also like another very important factors that pulls migration. We found the correlation between social networks and inflows of asylum seekers is four times larger than unemployment. And this really highlights our results that is not really important, the economic conditions at destination, but really the fact of having the possibility to rely on a community that is already there and already established. Valentina says countries that design labor policies to deter migrants often find that these policies backfire, both for people arriving and for the country's overall economy. For instance, if you ban asylum seekers from employment, this leads people seeking to become more dependent on public spending in the short term. And this is not good for anyone. There are some countries that do not put an asylum ban, like for instance, Sweden that allows asylum seekers to work, or there are countries such as Germany or Italy that have reduced the labor ban. So in your view, what should policies, when addressing migration, what should they focus on instead? In my own opinion, and looking both at the results that we found on asylum seekers and on migrants in general, if the aim of policymakers is to create an environment in which the largest number of people, migrants and natives, can thrive, both in terms of labor market inclusion or social inclusion. The policies, in my opinion, should not be really focused on controlling the inflows of migrants or asylum seekers, but uh, in achieving a better integration, both for asylum seekers and migrants, and uh, also try to create more social cohesion between natives and migrants. Okay, so we've heard about people's incentives for migrating and for choosing one place over another. And we've also heard from Heaven that the vast majority of migration happens within the global south. Right, so I wanted to find out just how easy it actually is for people to move within one of those regions, especially where there's lots of movement across borders. So I reached out to someone who focuses their research on migration across the African continent. My name is Christopher Changwenshimbi. I am an associate professor at the University of Pretoria, and also I am the director for the Center for the Study of Governance Innovation at the University of Pretoria, and also the research chair for the chair in the political economy of migration in the SADC region. Christopher focuses in his research on migration across the African continent and its relationship to regional economic integration and the informal economy. He started off by giving me a bit of context. With the end of the slave trade, of course, and also with the opening up of markets on the African continent, you see certain changes in terms of people, first of all, moving within the continent as the continent was also beginning to engage in processes of production and as investors were coming on the continent and 
requiring labor and also looking for markets for goods and services. So that has had an effect. And of course, we do also have disruptive factors like wars and conflict, for example, which force people to migrate. So you, they engage in forced displacements. And of course, I, currently people talk about environmental factors, which of course have historically influenced the movement of people on the continent. So broadly, those are the parties. You have global forces that relate to markets and the need for labor, the need for work, people looking for opportunities. Although it's difficult to access precise data about how many people migrate within the African continent, there are ways that researchers like himself can get an idea of just how much migration takes place between countries. So one quick reference point I can make would be the stock of migrants, where you go into a country and you, based on maybe census data, you look at people that were not born in that country or that register themselves as having not been born in that country, but were born elsewhere. And there are two regions where the flow of migration is especially high. Within Africa, and given its expanse and size, you find that the western region of the continent and also the eastern part of the continent, these seem to be the two most dynamic regions in terms of mobilities and in terms of movement of people. So you will find that in these regions, you have about 5.7 million people in West Africa moving within the region and also about 3.6 million in East Africa moving within the region. So that would represent for the West African region about 97% of the population being mobile in the region and for East Africa about 67%. The numbers are a bit less but still significant for the other regions on the continent. And so is it very easy then for people to move between countries and across borders? Is there free movement or, and how is that changing? It's not easy to cross borders in Africa. Uh, some people from one country will require a visa to enter another country. But there's been a bit of improvement. We have what is known as the Africa Visa Openness Index. The Visa Openness Index was established by the African Development Bank and the African Union Commission to measure the extent to which African countries are, quote, open to visitors and migrants from other African countries. It also encourages countries to adopt more progressive policies to allow for more travel, trade, and integration across the continent. And there seems to be a bit of improvement in the number and increase in the number of countries that do not require Africans to apply for visas before they start off for another African country. Although that still is very prevalent, nowadays an increasing number of countries will allow them to apply for a visa at an airport or at a border post when they arrive there. But still, mobility in that sense is not very easy on the African continent. We have African leaders trying to promote African integration, economic integration. We currently have what is known as the African Free Continental Trade Area. So within that spirit of integrating the African continent through trade and economically, there's also policies that would promote the movement of people along with the movement of goods and services across the continent. Christopher says that's because leaders recognize that their countries can benefit. 
first of all, if we focus on labor itself, if you free up the movement of people across the continent, then you open up opportunities for qualified and skilled personnel to be able to move to places within the continent where their services, their skills, their qualifications are needed and where they are lacking. And also with that movement, you allow for the generation of income or for the generation of capital. And in the reverse direction, people that would move for purposes of labor are able to provide what is popularly known as remittances. Remittances are when people who work and live in a foreign country send money or other resources back to their family and friends in their home country. But also it provides potential for the enhancing of social cultural relations, improving the relations, improving issues of social cohesion across the continent. So there are tremendous benefits to the freeing of movement of labor. People are, are not only economic agents, but they are also social agents. Uh, they are agents of development or they actually develop the continent or the countries where they visit. Are there any specific case studies or examples that you can give about how a very busy migration or mobility pattern might influence a region? When you talk about regional integration on the African continent, for example, and the mobility of goods and services, as well as the mobility of labor, you generally tend to get a picture that African integration has failed. It's not producing what is expected of it. So you will compare it with your European Union or your ASEAN and say maybe in the European Union there's over 50% of trade that is occurring or exchanges in Asia of your 16% and so on and so forth. But when you look deeper, you realize that actually there are these unrecorded and undocumented movements of people. People who move with goods, people who move to provide services, but also people who move for cultural reasons, for example, across the continent. And with those movements, actually, there's a lot of economic value that is attached to them. People move for purposes of culture, for example. They go to pay homage to their traditional authorities, which may find themselves in other countries, especially in borderland regions. In West Africa, we can talk about the Nigeria Ivory Coast Corridor there. A lot of trade happens formally within that region, but also there's a lot of informal trade that happens among the peoples in those regions, along with the cultural festivities and activities that I'm referring to. Also here in the Southern African region, there's a particular region that I have a lot of interest in, uh, which is known as the Zambia-Malawi-Mozambique Growth Triangle. Uh, there's a lot of social activity that feeds into the economy that happens in that region. Most of it goes undocumented and unrecorded, but if you really make those observations and see what happens there, it's tremendous, it's magnificent, and it makes very positive contribution to the local economies as well as to the regional economy. But Christopher says the policies and actions of countries in the global north, which are getting stricter when it comes to migration, are also shaping the movement and migration patterns of Africans within Africa. When you start to see regions like the European Union engaging with African countries or even the African Union, there is a sense in which, based on the information that is projected about migrants being a threat to high-income countries, 
the tendency seems to be to try and influence the movement, first of all, of Africans within the African continent and influence in a negative sense in the sense that the attempt is made to restrict their movement within the African continent with the aim being to ultimately restrict their movement out of Africa. So you find even policies that come along with that, that aim to restrict the movement of Africans within the African continent and also outside of Africa. And with those policies also come donor funding that comes in the guise of development aid or development funding. So you are going to develop a region with the understanding that if the region develops, people will not have a motivation to migrate because they will be in a country that is developed. For example, one recent uh, process, the EU has what is known as the Khartoum process. He's talking about a regional framework set up by the European Union in 2014 to limit migration between the countries in the Horn of Africa and the EU, ostensibly to combat human trafficking and smuggling. And basically, 2014, it comes up with this process where it seeks to aid development in countries that make up the Horn of Africa. And with that development, the aim is to develop those countries and also to help migration of people from the Horn of Africa to EU member countries. So that is just one example. There are other. We have the Rabat process and all other processes besides the other donor funding that is given the funds that are given out to help to curb migration. Both the Khartoum and the Rabat processes involve countries funding the detention of migrants trying to cross into Europe, but they also involve the development agencies of the EU and the individual countries within the EU, with the idea that increased economic development in African countries will stop people from migrating to Europe. But there's a lot of studies that have been conducted that dispute that view to say development doesn't necessarily translate into people stopping migrating. And actually, there are prominent scholars that have even gone further to show that actually with development, you have an increase in migration. Some studies show that low-income societies generally have lower emigration levels because poverty tends to constrain people's movement. Conversely, increased development leads to more instead of less migration because it increases people's capabilities and aspirations to move. In addition, Christopher says, research and reporting has found that financing from the EU and other countries is, in some instances, even being used to fund violent groups that detain, torture, and abuse migrants. In 2018, for example, the British newspaper The Guardian found that child refugees were facing abuse and malnutrition in a network of 26 Libyan detention centers that the British government was helping to fund through various migration initiatives. Christopher says there is evidence that financing these frameworks, which are aimed at preventing migration, is actually leading to increased instability and therefore leading to more migration. There are records that show that the parties that were engaged not only to develop countries like Sudan and those in the Horn of Africa, but also besides providing those monies for development, there are parties that were given funds to actually go out and stop people from crossing borders. There's a study out of a think tank in the Netherlands that says that that's one of the ways in which the current rapid support forces that are fighting in Sudan somewhat gained traction because they were contracted to be among the parties that were involved in stopping migrants from moving across the Sudan 
into other countries with the aim of uh, migrating to Europe. The Rapid Support Forces are a paramilitary force in Sudan, which was accused of committing human rights abuses in the Darfur region in the early 2000s and is now involved in an ongoing conflict with Sudan's army. Are there any particular countries that are real holdouts that are sort of opting out of regional integration for purposes of limiting migration? I wouldn't say they are holding out or opting out of regional integration, but there are tendencies that you can pick in terms of their behavior, their policy behavior. One is South Africa, where I am, and a lot is said about the country tightening its borders, particularly against undocumented migrants. So in that sense, there's a sense in which that works against the integration of the region. But also in the West African region, I can cite the example. At the height of COVID-19, actually Nigeria did seal its borders against a number of its neighbors. And the reason that was given was that, uh, first of all, the countries were riding on the Nigerian economy through imports of goods that were coming also outside of the ECOWAS region, but also that they were promoting organized crime, and therefore they had those borders closed. Those are not the only ones, by the way. There was a notorious case of the Uganda-Rwanda border that was closed for a long period and only opened up recently. Again, you have these accusations and counter-accusations of this country doing that and the other country doing that. But then you seal the border. And as a person who studies the informal economy, it's the informal trader on the ground who suffers because they depend on that trade for their livelihoods. So they are not able to export their goods, small quantities of goods, but they go a long way to help people meet their livelihood needs. So they are the ones that suffer at the end of the day. You're doing some research now on how the negative effects of climate change are impacting people's patterns of movement. Could you talk a bit about your ongoing research and what you've uncovered so far? So that research actually takes us back into history, but also in the contemporary times. Currently, we do have extreme weather patterns which lead to rapid onset factors that suddenly displace thousands of people. And that's something that the continent is grappling with currently. So we have areas, even here in South Africa, that in an unprecedented way have suddenly started to experience floods. The eastern part of Africa actually going to Madagascar and those island states on that side of the continent recently, maybe in the past five to ten years, has really been experiencing these cyclones and storms. And the impact has been on flooding, which has displaced people. So that that has contributed to forced displacement and it has an impact on how migration is governed on the African continent. We're trying to understand how the continent is going to cope with people that are displaced by such weather patterns. But Christopher says the history of migration across the African continent suggests there are reasons to be optimistic. I'd like to be positively optimistic uh, and my optimism is based on the 
long-standing desire of African leaders themselves to integrate the African continent. Uh, if you look at what is known as the 1991 Abuja Treaty for the economic establishment of the African Economic Community, actually the African continent was the first to come up with a position on refugees in the world. In 2009, members of the African Union signed the Kampala Convention, this is the first legally binding treaty in the world that requires states to protect and assist people who are internally displaced by armed conflict, natural disasters, and large-scale development projects in Africa. I think it can easily be extended to people that are displaced by extreme weather patterns and climatic conditions. So at least from a policy point of view, the continent does make provision and finds it acceptable to host refugees. Uh, and there are shining examples on the continent of countries that, though poor, but they host large numbers of refugees. If you look at countries like Uganda, for example, sometimes I even wonder why it is said that Europe or the EU had a migration crisis in 2015 when they received about 1 million <laughs> migrants. Actually, it's a bit ridiculous because if you look at countries like Uganda, they host over a million refugees, poor country, but they take care of them. They provide them with land to make a living while they are forcefully displaced before they can make their way back to their country. So in that sense, the continent has been hospitable to refugees. And I would like to think that with an increasing in tendencies of extreme weather patterns. I would like to think that they work around existing policies and that sense of hospitality, of hosting people that are displaced by natural forces or even by war to take care of them. That's it for this episode. Thank you to this week's guests, Valentina Diazio, Heaven Crawley, and Christopher Nishimbi. You can find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio, on Instagram at theconversation.com, or email us at podcast at theconversation.com. If you like what we do, please support our podcast and the conversation more broadly by going to donate.theconversation.com. This episode of The Conversation Weekly was produced and written by Avery Anapol and me, Ment Mariwani and with assistance from our producer Katie Flood. Sound design was by Eloise Stevens, and our theme music is by Nita Saal. Stephen Kahn is our global executive editor. Alice Mason runs our social media, and I'm also the show's executive producer. And I'm Avery Annapol. Thanks for listening.